Turn, if you would, to the 18th chapter of the book of Matthew. The play that my daughter and I are in did open last night, and someone in the class, who will remain nameless, did comment, you're right, your part is very small. (laughs) My daughter is in it a lot. Last week, we finished off chapter 17. We talked about Jesus coming down from the Mount of Transfiguration and performing the healing. We talked about uh, what faith meant and how we grow our faith and why the disciples had so little faith. We spent a good amount of time talking about what happened to verse 21. That's not in most of our modern translations. I won't repeat any of that discussion. So... Chapter 18, verse 1. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus, saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Now, we have to understand why would they come and ask him this question. If we are kind to the disciples, if we want to be generous to the disciples, we can think about maybe they came to Jesus because they wanted to know what it took to succeed in the kingdom of heaven. It's like if you start a new job and you ask somebody, what does it take to do well in this job? What does it take to succeed? That's a good question. I don't think that's what the disciples are asking. They're wanting to know where in the pecking order they're going to be when the kingdom of heaven arrives. I mean, remember, we've talked several times in the last couple of weeks, that Jesus keeps reminding them that he's going to go to Jerusalem and he's going to die. And then he's going to be resurrected. And you see in their minds, they're thinking, first off, it's, no, this can't possibly happen. No, we don't want this to happen. And Jesus rebuked Peter and said, get away from me because you're not thinking the things of God. But then you start thinking, okay, We've been following this guy. We've abandoned everything for him. Where are we going to end up when the good stuff gets here? When he is recognized as the Messiah, when he becomes the king, where are we going to be in the pecking order? That's what they're after. So they ask the question, who is going to be the greatest in the kingdom? And calling to him a child, he put him, the child, in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And they're all kind of looking at each other like, what in the world does that mean? Isn't that the cutest picture you've ever seen in your life? (laughs) That is our grandson. That was, that was take, that's Micah, was taken last week. In case you didn't know, my wife, this is my wife, she's back in class now, yay. We have raised eight children. We have one grandson. My wife, until this week, has run the morning nursery downstairs. What a lot of you don't know is that frequently I would leave this class and go work with the children downstairs. I tried teaching my lessons. They just didn't get it. 
I say all of this to make one point. I know children. I've been around children a lot. So the question is, why would Jesus bring a child into their midst and say, if you want to be great in the kingdom of heaven, you have to become like this child? Now, my grandson, the cutest child on the planet. I don't care about yours. The New York Times actually did a survey about three weeks ago. Are all babies cute? 30-something percent said yes. Uh, The rest said, "Mm, sometimes, maybe, no, never. I'm just quoting what I read, okay? But I also know that as cute as this grandson is, he is a sinner, okay? He cries, he eats, he poops, and he wants more. Why would Jesus take a child and put the child in the middle of the disciples and say, this is what you need to become in order to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? I'll take the distraction away. Why would he say that? In order to understand this, first we have to make a distinction between being childlike and being childish. We all know what it means to be childish because we have adult friends who are childish. They just never really grew up. I used to tell Teresa years ago when all the children were at home, I said, at least you get to spend your days with people who act their age. (laughs) Just saying. Paul says, when I became a man, I put away childish things. In his discussion of love, he put away his childish things. This belief that the universe revolves around me and mine and I want and I need, give it to me now. It is the sin nature. And as we mature, our sin nature just kind of matures with us. But what does it mean to be childlike? Micah, our grandson, is 100% dependent on adult human beings for every aspect of his life. There is nothing in his life for which he can say, if he could talk, that he could say, I have done all of this. Yet we know lots of adults who will stand and say, I did it my way. I have accomplished all of this. Everything you see, I worked, I earned it, I did it, I am my own man. And the disciples are sitting there trying to figure out how to be the top dog. And what Jesus wants them to recognize When it comes to your salvation, when it comes to being present in the kingdom of heaven, you might as well be an infant because you are doing nothing. 
the one characteristic that Jesus wants them to recognize in that child is the characteristic of humility. And you go, wait a minute, I've known lots of children who aren't that humble. They start talking, and there's lots of me and my words, right? Whether they recognize it or not is not the issue. Well, it is the issue, eventually. The issue is that they are totally dependent. They are totally dependent on someone else. And the essence of the Christian life, the essence of succeeding in the kingdom of heaven, is recognizing our total dependence upon God. If I enter the presence of God, if I get down on my knees and pray and say, God, I'm the greatest thing in the world, what can I do for you today? Okay, you're never ever going to really say that, are you? But you're going to think it. You're going to think God is blessed to have me on his team. God is, I mean, he should just really be pleased. I should be top dog in the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus is telling them, no. See this child? Unless you become like this child, the kingdom will mean nothing. It won't mean anything to you. So, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom. Humbles themselves like this child. I might add, just kind of as a reference point, we in the United States today have actually a very child-centered culture. We spend a lot of time catering to the needs of our children. We spend a lot of time thinking that we have to meet all the needs of our children, all the wants of our children, continually in order for them to succeed in life. Because if we don't give them everything they want and everything they need, they'll grow up hating us and that would be a bad thing. We live in a very child-centric society where you continue to read and hear articles about the fact that if you don't meet your child's needs, they're going to be warped for life. The society that we're talking about right here is not that way. With regard to the law, the children had very little rights, if any at all. They were the property of the parents who could dispose of them as they see fit. Now, in the Jewish tradition, children were a blessing from the Lord. They had all those verses out of the Old Testament that we continue to read. But, but in the eyes of the law, they were just something that the parents controlled. So, what did the disciples want? They wanted to be the people making the laws. They wanted to be the people making the rules. They wanted to be the greatest in the kingdom. They wanted the power. And Jesus says, unless you become as this child and humble yourself, what does it mean to be humble? This is interesting because I think so often we 
have a mistaken view in our head about what humility is. In fact, I would oftentimes say that our humility becomes a source of pride to us. Oh, I just can't do anything. I'm not very good. Because we know if we say that, somebody's going to say, ah, no, you're really, really good. Pat, 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 pat. No, I'm just not any... uh." You have heard the definition before that sometimes we talk about humility is thinking less of yourself. Humility is not thinking of yourself at all. Humility is putting the needs of other people first. Humility is recognizing that what you have accomplished, you did because of the help of other people. The help of other people. Now, we go to work, we work hard, and we accomplish things. And that's good. It's good that we work and we accomplish things. But we need to acknowledge that without the grace of God in our lives, first off, our salvation would not be there. Let's get that one out of the way. But I would contend that the rest of the stuff wouldn't be there either. The Old Testament tells us, who is it that gives you the strength to go to work in the first place? We think, I did this. A couple of weeks ago, we watched the uh, old movie Shenandoah. My kids had never seen it. We watched it. If you remember it, it's, you know, Jimmy Stewart. He's, his wife has died, and he's raising this house full of kids. And he promised his wife that he would take them to church every Sunday, and he promised that he would pray at every meal. So he starts the meal. We're thanking you for this food, but I'm not sure why. We did all the work. We plowed the field. We raised the crops. We planted it. We did all the work. But... My wife wanted me to thank you for it. And that's the way we are. The child is dependent. Now, I will throw this in. The child doesn't oftentimes recognize that they're dependent. Okay? That's the sin nature. The sin nature that exists in the child. We are not uh, followers of Rousseau that we think children are totally innocent and society corrupts them. I've been around enough children. But the humility is the recognition that we did not do this on our own. In fact, we didn't do anything of it on our own. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believes in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. You are going to lead a child astray. It would be better for you, according to this passage, it would be better for you if before you did that, You took a really large rock, a millstone, a heavy piece of rock that they would roll around to grind the wheat. It would be better if you took that and you tied it around your neck and you jumped into the sea rather than lead the child astray. Why? Because children are important 
to God. Keep that in mind, because we're going to talk about that right now. Woe to the world, woe to the world for temptations to sin. For it is necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. And if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. See that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I tell you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. We are talking about children, but we're talking about us. Specifically, we're talking about those that lead other people astray. This is actually an interesting passage here. We spend a lot of time, or we should spend a lot of time, talking about resisting temptation. I'm sitting here. I'm being tempted. How do I resist the temptation? We flee from the temptation. We pray for God's guidance. We ask help from the community of believers, etc., etc., We deal with temptation. We do not give in to temptation. But sometimes we forget that sometimes we are the tempter. You go, wait a minute. I've never tempted anybody. I've never dangled the poison in front of them and said, here, doesn't this look good? I don't lure children into houses made of candy so I can burn them. Good old Grimm's fairy tales, right? I don't do that. What does it mean then for me to lead a child or to lead anyone into temptation? So we're going to have a discussion about temptation. But remember, it would be better if you had a large rock tied around your head and thrown into the river rather than tempt a child to sin. This is an interesting passage. Woe to the world for temptations to sin. What is a temptation? It is something that is luring you, that is drawing you to commit some sin. We are not going to talk about specifics. We are not going to talk about when was the last time you were tempted. Because I guarantee you, if you think about it, it was sometime in the last uh, 12 minutes. (laughs) You go, wait a minute. No, I wasn't. Yeah, think about it. We are tempted to sin. Now, remember what the scripture says. God does not tempt us. We're also told that there is no temptation that Jesus himself did not suffer. So temptation itself is not a sin. I am tempted to fall into some sin. The temptation itself is not the sin. Yielding to the temptation is the sin. Was it Mae West or who is it that said... I don't like yielding to temptation, but what else can you do with it? Think about that for a while. 
Giving in to temptation is where the sin is. Okay? Woe to the world because the world is full of temptations. You doubt that? Anybody in here for one second doubt that the world is full of temptations? You will drive home today and you will get mad at that guy driving next to you because, I mean, I have this joke with my daughter, okay, as I yell at the other drivers in the nicest voice possible. I mean, it is my pet peeve, right? You're driving in the left-hand lane, the speed limit is 70 miles an hour, and you're going 60. I don't care if you want to go 60, just do it someplace else. <laughs> so I have a conversation with them. <sighs> I've lost it. You will have a temptation to think about something that you shouldn't think about, some desire. You will have a temptation to be angry at somebody because you didn't get what you wanted for lunch. You will have a temptation, a temptation, a temptation. I might add, there are some temptations in our lives that we have given into so often and so frequently that we no longer even view them as temptations. We just give into them. The world is full of temptations. Woe to the world because it is full of temptation. For it is necessary that temptations come. I've spent a lot of time this week contemplating that phrase. Why is it necessary for temptations to come? There's two basic answers that you can look at. One is the fact that God, having created a world with free creatures, that's us, who can make moral choices, have to be able to make choices. Why did God allow the serpent to come to Adam and Eve in the first place? Why didn't God just curse the serpent before the temptation? Because God had a plan in mind. God wanted the children, Adam and Eve, to respond to his will. And in order for them to freely do that, they had to be able to say no. And they did. Every day of our lives, God is allowing, notice I said is allowing, not putting, God is allowing temptations to enter our lives so we will know whether we are dependent upon God and say, God, I don't understand this, but I'm going to do it your way. Or whether we're just going to follow the world and do what everyone else does. So it is necessary in a moral universe where choices do make a difference for us to have the ability to sin. The other option is just the recognition that in this world, if you're going to walk in this world as a fallen creature, temptation is going to exist. You can't not do it. You think, okay, I'm going to be a monk and I'm going to disappear down into the desert where there's no other people and by golly, I will never be tempted again. Ha! More about that in just a second. 
Temptations are a part of the world in which we live. For it is necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one, woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. Woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. Remember I said, it is not a sin to be tempted. It is a sin to tempt someone to sin. And here's the question. How do we do that? Why do we do that? Well, I would contend we do it a lot and we don't recognize it. The word that is used here is the word that we, the Greek word that we get the word scandal from. Yes? I don't understand why it says it's necessary. Why do you think it says that? (laughs) Her question was, why is it necessary for temptation to come? Two answers that we just gave. One of them is the moral fabric of the universe. In order for your choices to make a difference, you have to be able to choose good or bad. Otherwise, you're just a robot. So if you have the ability to choose bad, someone, something, has to tempt you to do that. So in order to show that you are a moral creature, that you can do right and you can do wrong, there has to be a wrong to choose. So that's one possible answer. The second possible answer is that it's just an acknowledgement that the world, full of sinful creatures, us, is going to be full of temptations. It is a fact of life that everywhere you go, you're going to be tempted. The necessity is the acknowledgement that it's already there. You cannot escape it in this world, or you'd have to leave this world, which would be heaven. Okay? Go ahead. In what way? His observation is, could it be that it is a means by which God's mercy is demonstrated? What do you mean by that? If we, yeah. if we couldn't sin, we wouldn't be free will moral creatures. We would be robots. Okay? And, you know... If you want to believe in determinism of some sort, maybe that's the path you want to go. But my understanding is that God, in the Garden of Eden, set that tree and told them, don't eat of it. Why? Why did he do that? He gave them all this other stuff. Or if he was going to plant the tree, why didn't he plant it in Timbuktu, where they would never find it? But God wanted them to freely choose to follow him. And the serpent, Satan, came and tempted them, and they chose otherwise. And since that day, all of us have an inclination, a predisposition. It's called our sin nature, our desire to do that which God tells us not to do. And God, in His grace and mercy, has come 
to free us from the penalty of those actions. Those actions being sin. Now, we're not talking about us yielding to temptation, though. We're talking about us being the tempter. And the Greek word that is used here is the word that we get scandal from. What is a scandal? If you look in a good moral theology book, you will see that I can sin in such a way that it affects only me. Or I can sin in such a way that it causes scandal by encouraging other people to sin also. They look at me and go, oh, he got away with it. Oh, that looks like that was fun. Oh, I think I'll do that also. And that's called scandal. And the passage here is telling us, woe to the world that temptation is in it. It is a bad thing. But, but, woe to the individual who brings it into a particular situation. So, we've got to answer the question, somehow, some way. What is it that we do that causes others to sin? Well, I've never done that. I would never do that. We have a very individualistic view of life. Okay? It's me and mine. Well, it's just me, actually. <laughs> and what I do, I am an autonomous human being, and what I do shouldn't have any effects on any other person. What I do is my own business. I told you a couple of months ago, reading an um, interview with a female actress, who will remain nameless because it's not important, and they just ask random questions, and they ask a question about pornography. And she said, well, it's okay as long as it's consensual. Now, I don't even know what that means. <laughs> okay? Did the person producing the pornography consent to doing it? Probably. I mean, there are cases where they don't, but let's assume that they agreed to do it. Did the person view the, viewing the pornography consent to do it? Probably. We'll assume they did. Did the girl's father consent to doing it? No. Uh, did the man's wife sub com consent to doing it? No. Did the man's children consent to do it? Let's say he's not even married. Did his future wife consent to do it? No. Well, that's not their business. Yes, it is, because that pornography is going to affect everything that he does regarding sex for the rest of his life. What does that mean? That I can sit in this box and do things and they not have an effect on other people. There was a, he's a well-known pastor, and he sat down one day and wrote out a list. If I left my wife, here are the things that would happen. And he typed it up, and he put it on his desk to protect him from sin. Why? Because our sins have consequences, and one of those consequences is the 
effect that it has on other people to lead them into sin. And one of the biggest people that we lead into sin are children. And that's this passage. That's this passage. At this point, I could launch into the biggest sermon imaginable about media, about movies, about books, and the image they portray about human sexuality, about what it means to be virtuous, and all of this stuff. Because I will tell you right now, we've totally messed it up. We, as adults, have totally messed it up. When we, as adults, do not present to our children what a virtuous life looks like, we are causing scandal. When we, as adults, tempt children to do things that they ought not do, it would be better if we had a large rock tied around our neck and we jumped into the river. That's what Jesus is telling us. But wait a minute. I want to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus says, become like the child and don't lead the children astray. We could have a long discussion, a long discussion about the ways in which we allow sin in our lives to affect the lives of those that we come in contact with, which affects the lives of those who come in contact with them, etc., and etc., and etc. There are... We believe that our actions should not be responsible for the lives of other people. But God has put us in a community. He has put us around other people. And what we do does affect the lives of those around us. If I left Teresa today, Micah would suffer from it. That's just a fact. Now, remember... God is a God of grace. God forgives us when we repent. Okay? Don't think that, you know, you've crossed the boundary. As long as there's breath in your lungs, you can repent. But until you acknowledge that your actions have effect, and in this passage right here, specifically with children, you will not repent of it because you don't know that you're doing it. And if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. Now, I don't know many of you in here missing an arm. Okay, some might. What is this telling us? We actually had this discussion, if you remember, during the Sermon on the Mount. Because it talked about, if your eye causes you to sin, cut it out, because it would be better. Is he telling you right here to go home today, get out your 
uh, table saw and whack off your arm because that will keep you from sinning. Well, actually, he's not saying that. Sounds like he's saying that. Why? Well, what the Scripture wants us to do is the Scripture wants us to say no to temptation. We're all in agreement on that, right? The Scripture wants us to say no to temptation, particularly in this case, the temptation to tempt other people. So, here's my question. How much effort are you willing to spend to say no to temptation? That's an odd question. Let me set an upper limit on this, okay? Be willing to cut the things out of your life that are causing you to sin if that's what it takes. But we're down here. And the temptation comes, and we fight for about four seconds, and then we give up. I mean, what's the point, right? You're going to give up anyway. Why, why not just do it quicker? I listened to the uh, sermons from a singles ministry here in town that several of my children attend, and the guy talk, was talking about, well, he was talking about pornography. And he says, after every uh, sermon that he talks about it, somebody will come up to him, a guy, and say, I'm really struggling with pornography. And he goes, okay, give me your cell phone. He gives him his cell phone. He says, okay, I'm throwing this away. I go, no, you can't. I have to have that. He said, then you're not struggling at all. You're just giving in whenever you want to. Get rid of it. Throw it away. This passage is giving us a picture of the urgency that we should apply to dealing with the temptation in our lives. We know that it's not the hand or the eye that causes you to sin. It is the condition of your heart. But we also know that there are things that we can do that remove, limit, deal with the temptations in our lives. I'm tempted to sin. Call somebody up a strong Christian believer, and say, I'm struggling right now. I will not quite guarantee you, but I will give you a pretty strong guarantee that just doing that will put the end to a lot of stuff. Do whatever it takes. But I don't want to. You're right. I'm going on a diet. But before I start my diet, I'm going to stuff my refrigerator full of really good things to eat. I'm going to go down to the Cheesecake Factory and get some really large cheesecakes and put them in the refrigerator. And then I'm going to start my diet because, you know, I need to be able to resist temptation. You're not that strong. He is telling us to do whatever it takes to deal with the temptation. I feel like leading a child astray. Don't do it. Mealstone around your neck. Jump in the river. It would be better for you. Our problem is we don't think it's that big a deal. We really don't. We're too busy concerned about how to be 
the top dog in the kingdom. That's what we want. How can I get ahead? And Jesus says, be humble like the child. And whatever you do, don't lead that child into, into temptation. And if you think about leading that child into temptation, stop it. Stop it. See that you do not despise one of the little ones, for I tell you that in heaven the angels, their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. This is actually one of the passages where we get the idea of guardian angels. And I'm not going to get into a discussion of that because I'm not sure I understand that, okay? This idea that you have an angel watching over you. This is actually one of the passages where we get that. All I think we do need to understand, are you ready for this? The toughest beings in the universe are watching that child and you're messing with them. Don't do it. The greatest spiritual beings, created beings, so we're going to rule out God for just a second. The greatest created spiritual beings are guarding that child and you're treating that child as something that you can use to accomplish your purpose. Don't do it. But you know, if I put this in this movie, the kids will come see it. Don't do it. If I put this in this article, this book, the kids will read it. Don't do it. If I tell this child, it doesn't matter what you do, just be yourself, don't do it. Why? Because God is watching over that child. And it would be better for you if you had a big rock tied around your neck and thrown into the sea. Well, we're way out of time. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the ninety-nine that never went astray. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. You're all familiar with this story. My children did musicals about this story. We like sheep, we like sheep, we like sheep. Anyway, you know the story. The shepherd has a hundred sheep, and he's counting every day his hundred sheep. I spent 30 years of my life counting to eight. I kid you not. We would be walking everywhere. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. I did that more times than you could possibly imagine. This shepherd is going, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, hundred. One, two, three, four, a hundred. Every day. And one day, he brings them back into the pasture, and he counts, and he gets to 99, and he goes, huh. Let's count again. He counts again, 99. Well, it's 1% loss. What's the big deal? I mean, really, from a purely economic standpoint, what's the big deal? It's just one sheep, but it's his sheep. 
Now remember this, okay, just so that you don't forget. We have a very high view of ourselves. Throughout the New Testament, we are compared to sheep. Sheep are dumb creatures. <laughs> just saying. But it's his sheep. It's his sheep. And he leaves the 99, and he does whatever it takes to find the one. Let me tell you how you were saved. You ready for this? At some point, God came looking for you. We have this long discussion, you know, about salvation and that horrible word we don't like, predestination, and we're not ever going to get into that again, okay? <laughs> but let me assure you of one thing. Salvation begins with God. Salvation begins when God says, I'm one short, and I'm going to go find them. Why? What's the point? He's got 99 because it's his, and it's out there. Now, this is talking about salvation, but it's talking about children. And yes, we are children of God. If your child was lost, what would you be willing to do? Anything, everything. What did God do for us? Everything. Now, what if I want to lead this child astray? Take a big rock, tie it around your neck, and jump into the sea. Let's close in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you that when we were the lost sheep, you came and found us. For it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.